Welcome along. It's another edition of The Punt here on The 42. Uh, we are here, as we are every month, in association with William Hill. So please do gamble responsibly and visit dunlewy.net. So the focus of this week's show and this month's show is a weekend in Manchester. We'll be talking about Manchester United against Liverpool with David Snaid uh, in a few moments. But first of all, we're looking ahead to uh, Natasha Jonas and Katie Taylor renewing rivalries in the Manchester arena, this time in the professional ranks and nine years on uh, from their famous meeting in the London 2012 Olympics. Joining me to look ahead to that fight are Gavin Casey of the 42 and Joe O'Neill of irishboxing.com. Gav, let's start with you. You might tell us briefly what's at stake for Katie on Saturday night and whether we can expect another Olympic-style classic between her and Jonas. The usual, I suppose, is at stake, Gav. Uh, All of the marbles, as they say, all of the belts at £135, uh, an undefeated record and a an undisputed status, if you like. Uh, it's been the case over her last couple of fights. Uh, she obviously did move up briefly to challenge Christina Leonardo too for a £140 title as well, which she won, which she since relinquished. Uh, and that wouldn't be on the line, generally speaking, anyway, in a lightweight fight. Uh, and for as for your second question, can we expect another classic akin to their Olympic clash? I think so. I, I think there is always a case or case to be made for Katie coming down a level to her opponents at times in order to entertain I'm not saying that she's leagues uh, above Natasha Jonas at all Natasha Jonas is a fantastic fighter and maybe the best pure boxer that Katie has faced but I do think Katie is a better fighter and yet if the invitation is there for a tear up even without fans present uh, Katie usually accepts it so I'd, I'd anticipate it being a very entertaining fight uh, i think that Jonas also has the capacity to entertain like when you go back to that 2012 fight it, it's kind of how I expected to play out this weekend in a different guise in that it was a, an amateur uh, point scoring system at that time and it was always a fun fight throughout the four rounds but there was really always a sense that Katie was in marginal control of it and, and always had her nose ahead and I sort of see it saying, see it playing out similarly this weekend Mm. Joe, you might tell us what Jonas has been up to since she last crossed our consciousness nine years ago. She's had a winding sort of journey. She basically retired from boxing. She had a child. And then Taylor turns pro in 2016. And Jonas is on commentary and analysis for the fight. And she's talking about how she won't be coming back. Uh, and Taylor's joking with her, saying, oh, come on, come on. And then a couple of years later, Jonas has turned pro herself and it seemed like, because she's a bit of a Sky Sports darling, like it was a big fight that they were going to build immediately. Um, Jonas starts well, gets a couple of wins under her belt, but then it all goes, it all goes um, seemingly down the toilet when she loses to Vivian Obanoff, who Taylor beat in her second fight. She got stopped pretty pretty definitively in that fight and it looked sort of that she was just gonna drift off not knock him back and then she comes back gets a few wins under her belt but again not in the same sort of conversation as Taylor we're not really seeing it at all and she ends up fighting last summer Terry Harper who who was a world champion the weight below Taylor super featherweight she wasn't given a chance in that fight really at all. It was seen sort of a, as a passing the guard. Terry Harper is one of these new breeds. I think she's 22, 23, whereas uh, Jonas is in her mid-30s. And it was sort of seen as this was an opportunity for Harper to look really good and get a win over a known name. But what happened was really anything but that Jonas basically showed all her skills and nous to really... Well, I wouldn't say give a lesson to Harper because it was a really close fight, but she really surprised everyone there, Jonas. And the fight ended up a draw as itself. I'd say a strong majority of people probably thought Jonas deserved a nod. Uh, I decided I had her winning by two points. I think Gavin, you'd be similar. Yeah. Then, then yeah, so they were talking maybe there'll be a rematch that fight, but again, nothing came of it. And Taylor now in need of an opponent or in, in, at least in need of a known opponent on this side of the Atlantic 
uh, Jonas sort of really just fit the bill there and this really long winding saga is finally getting its second instalment or third I suppose they met twice in the amateurs just to go back to the open out defeat Gav at that time as Joe said it felt like it had derailed Jonas's entire professional career which was probably if we're honest born of a desire to fight Katie Taylor I mean as Joe was saying when she was ringside for Taylor's debut she jokingly or half jokingly laughed off suggestions that she might turn pro herself and I think only after seeing Taylor's progress over the next couple of years the money she was beginning to make uh, the adulation she was beginning to receive probably especially in the UK where Jonas should have been the darling really uh, inspired her to turn professional I don't think she ever looked at it as a kind of a long haul thing uh, or a long term goal it was more so uh, something where she probably sought immediate gratification because she had the the kind of not even raw materials but um, the ingredients from her amateur career the ability to go a long way in the pro sport and that open out defeat was kind of it, it it's a little chapter in the story of just their professional rivalry if you like because Brian Peters Katie Taylor's manager would be fairly friendly with Joe Gallagher who's Natasha Jonas's trainer and I know Peters was <laughs> trying his best to be persuasive and insistent that Jonas doesn't campaign down at super featherweight where he felt she'd be a little bit more vulnerable there are a couple of big punchers down there um a couple of dangerous fighters, some of whom she never even wound up facing because of that defeat to Obanauf. And Peters maintained that this was a massive fight, prospective fight between Taylor and Jonas. Think of it on Sky Sports, whereas Joe says Jonas is a name, Taylor is now a massive name. And the fact that Obanauf stopped her and seemingly put an end to all of it was the source of much ire on the behalf of Taylor's team. Not so much Taylor herself. She doesn't really think of these things in these terms. Uh, it doesn't really care who she fights, really. But for then, for Jonas then to launch a career comeback, if you like, that culminates in this title shot against Terry Harper, who, if Obanev stopped Jonas, Harper would have been expected to do similar. Eventually, she hits relatively hard, like punches with a bit of a thud at least. And she had been on a kind of a meteoric rise of her own, like stacking up wins, but also accruing fans and selling tickets when that was a possibility not long ago. And Jonas did ostensibly beat her. It's a complete career renaissance, if you like. And she's, you could argue maybe to go from that directly into a title shot of division above is a bit of a leap in a couple of ways and that maybe she should have had to win a fight at 135 pounds or something in the interim but she did ostensibly beat a champion at 130 and the fight is back on and as big as it would have been had she never lost open out which is quite remarkable and that really does come back down to that performance against harper it was a fight that should have been lost and for all intents and purposes was lost but has been rediscovered and is the co-main event now on a Sky Sports box office show on primetime on a Saturday night. Mm. But I, like we talk so often about Katie Taylor being transformative for women's boxing. I, perhaps lazily, always assumed that she would be transformative for the generations to come after her. But it sounds with Natasha Jonas, she's effectively helped give Jonas a professional career. So she's, you know, she's making waves and making... Uh, making possibilities for her contemporaries herself which is kind of an interesting angle to, to Katie's to the uh, ripple effect of Katie's career that I hadn't really considered up to now so on Jonas Joe I mean to what extent was the Terry Harper performance an aberration and or to what extent can we look at it and say she might trouble Katie Taylor on Saturday night uh, this is maybe where I'm going to contradict myself but I do sort of believe that the Jonas Harper fight was not a one-off performance from Jonas, but a sort of a career best, uh, almost like a last standy sort of performance. I don't think she'll be able to replicate that, especially against someone like Katie Taylor. Like, say, if Harper and Jonas were to rematch next month, I'd probably be picking Harper again. But she... Like, I don't want to disrespect Jonas, because, again, she's a brilliant boxer. She's won, I think, I know... People always say Taylor won 18 major gold medals. I think Harper, I, I think so Jonas won around six medals herself. Like she is very, very technically proficient, but they're not really the sort of people that will trouble Taylor in the pros. 
like as Gavin said just there, that she probably is the technically best fighter Taylor has fought in the pros, but it's probably the least technically proficient fighters that have caused Taylor problems. The likes of Pursun, McCaskill and Lynn Adartu, just the rough and tough brawlers, unorthodox sort of people that Taylor wouldn't have really come across in her 10 years at the very top level of the amateur game. Whereas Jonas is a lot purer than that. And that I think is just going to play into Taylor's hands. Like I really, I really don't see a way that Jonas can win this fight. Like she does, like if you're going through all her attributes, she probably does have more power than Taylor and that southpaw straight left hand, right hook. It worked well against someone a bit greener like Harper, but it's not like, I don't really believe anyone in women's boxing has that sort of one punch knockout power. If anyone was going to, it probably will be someone like Jonas, but I don't think that's going to be enough to win a 10 round fight with Taylor. Can I just jump in there, Gavin? And while I broadly agree, I, I do think it's worth considering that even though Joe's absolutely spot on in, in saying that the more come forward abrasive types of fighters have trouble Taylor more than purer boxers like this fight does remind me in some ways of Taylor's fight with David Wallstrom who was also an amateur rival of hers from that sort of Taylor Jonas era if you like and Wallstrom performed very capably Taylor kind of beat the brakes off her in the end and, and won a lopsided decision I think in a fight in which the rounds are only two minutes long game plans which are such an annoying buzzword really across a lot of sports are absolutely quintessential to the outcome of a fight and if Jonas had has worked on something some kind of a wrinkle particularly from a southpaw stance that she can drop three four times even two three times in a round it can be enough at times in a quiet sort of a fight to win rounds Uh, and I anticipate Jonas will win a few rounds here and like when there are only 10 of them and when they're only two minutes long you know you can dig yourself a hole fairly quickly or you can steal a little bit of a lead fairly quickly I don't think it's inconceivable that say the shots that Joe mentions there like I don't anticipate Jonas is going to land her left hook right hand um, as readily as against Taylor as she was able to against Harper who was much greener not only is Taylor just a better uh, fundamental boxer than Harper but also she'll have seen footage of Jonas doing that and with years of experience, you won't need Ross Enemy telling her how to avoid it. I mean, she'll know. But if Jonas can, I, I guess, conceive of something else, some other little combination that maybe Taylor hasn't faced as a pro so far. She's only fought one other southpaw. Win a few rounds, who knows? Like, it is... Everything is stacked in Taylor's favour, don't get me wrong, and Joe is correct in what he says, but I don't think we, I don't think people should be going into this fight expecting a guaranteed Taylor victory. I know it's a bit of a cliche, oh, nothing is guaranteed in boxing, but I, I really only mean nothing is guaranteed in this specific fight. Jonas has enough in her arsenal to make it a difficult night, even if we don't necessarily anticipate that she will. Mm. To what extent is Katie vulnerable, Gav? Because every time we preview a Taylor fight now, or the last few anyway, those pursuit fights do a lot of heavy lifting because, you know, the theory is, well, it shows that ta- the Taylor can be hurt and she's she's human like the rest of us and that was the main kind of discourse ahead of the Gutierrez fight and then Taylor was outrageously good and you know barely had a scratch on her uh, and barely had sweat on her brow by the time the fight was over like is she vulnerable at all or is that is that angle because I know Natasha Jonas has been playing up that angle ahead of this fight as well and, and Sky have been going along with it to, to say that she is vulnerable she is human uh, so is she or uh, or can Jonas uh, exploit that I think everybody is vulnerable if they get punched squarely in the chin to to, to some degree uh, and to varying degrees. Like, Taylor has a brilliant chin and we've known that for years. And we've seen her hit really hard by Delphine Pursun and hit often by Delphine Pursun, particularly in the first fight, but also to a degree in the second fight. And we've seen her rattled, hurt. I would say if there was an extra minute at the end of the 10th round in their original fight at MSG, Taylor was in danger of being stopped. That was my impression being there. Uh, and that was my impression watching it back. She probably disagrees. Uh, I am I know a lot of more people who, who would agree. Um, so if Jonas, with the power that Joe was talking about, is able to land cleanly and land often, that's... I mean, she 
she conceivably wins the fight. You know, the the reality or the expectation is that she won't be able to do that because Taylor is so good. But Pursuant showed that there is a way in that it's to absolutely barrage her with come forward pressure, back her into corners, um, put her on the back foot with the entirety of the fight. And Taylor can box off the back foot pretty well, but Pursuant is almost superhuman in, in her own way, um, in that <laughs> and there are probably questions around it, to be totally honest, but in that she is able to outlast a fully professional fighter as a policewoman and probably looks like she has another 9-10 rounds in her at the end of fights. Jonas can exert a different type of pressure, but you can't do that. And that's the way to beat Taylor, probably, or, or at least that's the only way we, we know somebody can beat Taylor at the moment as a professional. Jonas might have other ideas as to how that can be done and we'll find out on Saturday night. But like to answer your question about Taylor's vulnerability or her fallibility, of course she's only human, we know that, but... You have to make her look human and really is it fair to say joe only one person in pursuit has done that i know you mentioned mccaskill um you could argue mccaskill made her look human but it was still a i would say a what like a, a fairly conclusive victory for taylor same with leonardo too you're probably talking you're looking at what like a 7-3 type of victory in rounds so pursuit is the only one who has like pursuit has as jonah said completely eroded that aura of invincibility that Taylor has and we saw that towards the end of her amateur career as well with a couple of defeats where it was suddenly like the bubble popped and she was less this mythical figure and more a boxer who can be beaten but it's all well and good saying that in advance of the fight but Natasha Jonas isn't Delphine Pursuit, so she has to find a way to show that Taylor is human and go that one step further I think and it sounds like Joe that maybe Jonas doesn't have quite the style to do that no, I don't think she has the style and even her own durability, she did look like she did look very, very strong against Harper, as we were saying, but that was the only time that she's ever gone 10 rounds as a pro. And I know they're only two minute rounds, but it's still like it is still a box to be ticked. And Taylor has gone, I think, nine times she's gone the distance like Taylor has shown herself to be extremely durable. Her chin, as Gavin has said, is insane. And yeah like if you're looking at this from a non-irish standpoint you're like we we always sort of have a tendency to like see where taylor is fallible but like taylor is the one here who was perhaps more rugged more durable and it's jonas you'd be looking at like can she last 10 rounds with taylor and taylor's body attack which is so so good will she wilt down the stretch will Jonas maybe look to try make it a boxing match and let Taylor get into a bit of a let Taylor build up a head of steam sort of and take over the fight and then are you into a sort of scenario like the Gutierrez fight where after only a few rounds you're wondering like will the only real question is whether Taylor will get stoppage or not Mm. the Gutierrez Gutierrez fight Gav is an interesting one in that quite a a lot of the discourse after that was that Miriam Gutierrez had no business being in the ring with Katie Taylor. Women's boxing was a joke again, even though we'd literally just seen Taylor in two epic fights with Pursuit, but whatever. It's uncompetitive. Nobody can touch her. And the reality is that Gutierrez is actually a good boxer. Like, she won a couple of Spanish titles at two different weight divisions as an amateur. She's been boxing for two decades competitively. This wasn't some woman coming in from behind the counter with Burger King. Like, this was an actual boxer who Taylor utterly diffused, dismantled, and ultimately destroyed and that's what that is uh i guess bolsters joe's point about how the fa- how taylor does well against boxers like gutierrez as much as she didn't really get an opportunity to show it she can box she can punch as well savannah marshall who's a world champion 20 25 pounds above the women we're talking about now has sparred with gutierrez and has and said she can really punch in advance of the fight she said this should be a good fight between taylor and gutierrez so that's sometimes the danger if you don't have that come forward kind of pressure style or if you can't take the heat in the kitchen for 10 rounds you you could be systematically picked apart and Jonas needs to exert pressure cleverly here like she probably does need to be the aggressor in the fight but as Joe says then can't she do that for 10 rounds against somebody who's probably going to be hitting her relentlessly accurately sharply like Taylor's not the most powerful puncher in the world but she punches hard enough to really annoy you kind of that Mayweather type power late stage Mayweather type power and there's no evidence to suggest really that Jonas can 
do that because we haven't seen her against a, a boxer of Taylor's ilk. And the only time, the two times she's come under proper fire have been Obanauf, she crumbled. Harper, she did extremely well. And this is a step up, a massive step up from both of those. Mm. Just briefly, Gav, like the Jonas fight is one of the most memorable moments of Katie's amateur career. Like I would say that the gold medal fight in London and then sadly the, the defeat of Pat Conan in uh, in Rio. Like I can't actually really remember the semi-final in London, but I do very vividly remember the Jonas quarterfinal because it was just such a great occasion and it was a good fight. So the, there will be people tuning into this fight on Saturday night who haven't seen Taylor a whole lot since, the, since that uh, fight against Jonas in 2012. So could you briefly tell us how she has changed, how Taylor has changed or if she has changed at all in how she fights um, in, in, in those intervening nine years in the step from amateur to professional? She has changed. There are probably more subtle changes. Like she's she's definitely added a few shots to her arsenal under Rossinamoy that she's needed to uh keep people off of her, I suppose, in the pro game where that come forward style is rewarded more. Whereas when she was an amateur, she was fighting under a completely different point scoring system than exists now. Um the scoring system in the amateur game now is, is pretty much the same as the pros. Uh when Taylor was an amateur it was about like it, it was really accuracy that was rewarded rather than pressure. So uh, she's got she's always had check hooks and things like that. And in fact, it's difficult to say oh she didn't have this shot before because in Joe, Joe's the man with the stats in terms of her amateur career. He inputs them on boxrec.com, which is the official record of these things. But in however many amateur fights Taylor had in total, she's probably thrown every shot in the book. Right? It's more about perfecting some of those skills and being able to combine them with other skills that I think she's added to her arsenal since and even some of her counterpunching in that second pursuit fight was exquisite i mean some of the most pure beautiful boxing you could actually see and these were little maneuvers that she was producing that she wasn't able to do against pursuit the first time so whatever about her the differences in in her now compared to when she fought fought Jonas for the first time she's actually probably shown that she's added a few things in between fights at times as a professional which is a testament to her work with Ross Enamoy. I think one thing that I've I noticed when I look back on her amateur career or some of her old amateur fights is that she is slower now than she was then it's not something that's discussed at all but of course at her age as she approaches her or she's in her mid-30s I guess she's bound to be a little bit slower she's fought for the majority of her life and these things do take a a toll on your reflexes your athleticism it might not be especially perceptible unless you've watched a lot of her but she has slowed down a bit which makes it to me a little bit more impressive that she remains this supreme boxer in the professional ranks who for a long time did have that aura of invincibility and i'm not saying she's at the cliff's edge where she should be considering retirement because she hasn't slowed down to that degree whatsoever. In many ways, you could say she's a more complete fighter now than she was then. She's just that little bit less athletic, tiny bit less athletic than she used to be and has had to probably adapt a little bit to that. That being said, nobody really comes close to her in those departments either still. So maybe it's just the case that we haven't really seen that uh, cause her too much hassle yet. But in terms of, I suppose, to, to... Go back to your original question, like how she's different or will people notice her being different this time around? I guess if you haven't watched her since 2012 or if you've only watched her a couple of times in the last nine years, uh, probably not not that different. But to people who, who follow boxing, the likes of Joe, probably considerably different, to be fair, as is Jonas. Like hmm. she stressed yesterday that there's not a great deal you can read into their first fight in order to predict a winner here in that they're two different people, two different fighters, they fight a different way and they're fighting in a different sport, really. So as much as it could resemble the first fight in the sense that it should be entertaining, they're, they're, they're two different animals in there at the moment. Not to say that they're far better now than they were then, um, but they are different, <laughs> to answer your yeah. question. Joe... If Katie does win on Saturday, which I think we all are expecting, what's next? Like, I mean, does she have any worlds left to conquer? See, this is actually, I find, a really interesting question because um, there is really sort of two paths where, like, there is the, um, there's America, which seems to be probably where she will be heading. And, like, you have the likes of Jessica McCaskill, who is undisputed champion at welterweight now, a rematch there. 
there's always going to be the Amanda Serrano saga that's going on. But I think after the Gutierrez fight, there's um, her handlers at Matchroom really sort of want fights that at least appear meaningful. And that's why Jonas is filling such a gap here because Gutierrez, like Gav alluded to it there, the, like, wasn't, didn't really get a great reception from some people sort of like who basically just um, like wrote off all of Gutierrez's talents and it was Taylor and it was a bad for women's boxing according to some people. But like, I think Jonas, I think there are people like on this side, like Estelle Mosley, who won Olympic gold in 2016. That is a potential fight, but maybe not for, maybe not a super fight like the McCaskill or Serrano fights would be um, in America where Taylor probably will be rounding out her career. But it's whether she can get those Serrano and McCaskill fights next, which I'm not 100% sure on. I would... I'd be confident enough that they could get the McCaskill. Maybe they'd want to build it a bit more, but you do have people like Mosley or even Ochagaba, who Taylor fought in the Olympic final. She's turned pro now. She turned pro, got a couple of wins, took a few years off, and then came back last December. She, like, that would be a fight with plenty of sort of narrative and juice in it. And I'm just wondering, like, how Taylor does get to that McCaskill and Serrano fights, because they are the two sort of not cash out fights, but they're the two biggest fights on the table at the minute. Like Taylor rightly has written off the chance of a sort of freak showy sort of fight with Clarissa Shields, who is too high up in weight for Taylor to even really consider. But yeah, I so so to <laughs> so to really just uh uh, cl- uh condense everything there. Yes, I think it's going to be McCaskill and Serrano eventually, whether they're next or whether they'll try find a few more Jonas-esque sort of opponents remains to be seen. Mm. Uh, just taking a brief look at this card, uh, uh, this card elsewhere. Gav, tell us about James Tennyson. Yeah, he has a, a fight for the IBO world title, which has been the source of a lot of discussion, including with Tennyson himself yesterday on a presser. It's not one of the governing bodies that would typically be recognised as a major governing body or its belts wouldn't be recognised as major belts necessarily but Tennyson is counting it as a, a world title fight and feels that this is a an opportunity for which his hard work has paid off and uh, to anyone who is unfamiliar with Tennyson at this point first and foremost I would say watch him on Saturday night he's a, a young lad from Belfast who packs a bit of a wallop he's always in fun fights he's on that kind of He's on the fringes, I would say, of uh, world title contention for the four more recognized belts. There are some massive names in America that are currently the custodians of those belts. And Saturday night uh, for Tennyson is about winning, winning explosively. And Joe, like to bring you in here, Joe, it's a conversation we've had in the past. It's also about riding on Katie Taylor's coattails a little bit. And that's that sounds quite disrespectful to Tennyson. So I'll, I'll try and qualify it. What I mean is... To a lot of people watching this or listening to this at the moment, they might not be necessarily aware of who Tennyson is. But first and foremost, he is so he's so entertaining that he should have kind of a, a kind of a pull with fans or with casual sports fans because he he has he's a knockout artist like and people tend to like that even if they're not massive fo- followers of boxing or say MMA. But secondly with the fact that Carl Frampton has stepped away from the sport quite recently, there is a, a void in Belfast now, and probably a void in Irish boxing generally, alongside Katie Taylor to become the male equivalent or the male star in the sport here. And Tennyson has the ability and the style, I think, to fill that void, but it's about taking it. And on Saturday, he gets the opportunity to put himself in the living rooms of people all over the island, not just in Belfast, and put his hand up, look good, uh, and people hopefully will continue to follow him. He's a, He doesn't say an enormous amount, and I mentioned this at a presser yesterday, and his, <laughs> I think his trainer, Tony Dunlop, took issue with it at the end. I'm not sure if he was speaking about me, but he was kind of making the point that, like, just because he doesn't say much doesn't mean anything. He's a down-to-earth, humble guy. Anybody who ever interviews him says that to me which I'd agree with. He's an absolutely lovely man. It's just that he likes to let his fists do the talking. I'd suggest that sometimes, even though you have that as a as a career avenue, if you like, 
it's no harm to do a little bit of talking of your own as well and add that into the mix and, and really try to grab attention because he has the potential to be a massive star uh, and Saturday is kind of another step towards realising that. Um, but Joe, I, like I know your colleague Johnny Stapleton kind of disagrees. He likes the idea of Tennyson being a, a quiet assassin and being this almost mysterious figure who doesn't say a great deal in advance of fights and then goes in and bombs opponents out, which which is nice as well. It's just for my own opinion with opportunities like Saturday where you have a huge Irish audience, hopefully, it wouldn't be any harm for him to open up that little bit more, just give people a, a sample of his personality as well as his ability. Yeah, like it is a, between yourself and Johnny's points, it is a bit of a tightrope, but like as you're saying, you can get that sort of warm Belfast humor with like he is a like he's not a plank <laughs> like he he does have a personality and it's just it's almost like it's not like he's camera shy or anything but he just doesn't seem really interested by it and bored of it by self-promotion like it doesn't really appeal to everyone and maybe because previous like someone say like Carl Frampton or Mick Conlon they had the cameras and the attention from the very start so like you're able to see the personality shine through in a more gradual sense whereas James Tennyson came up the hard way did it the right way but to then be in front of the cameras and then being doing the interviews uh it maybe is hard to sort of portray something that seems genuine I think this week actually has been quite good though because like you've seen like I've seen a bit more personality from James in is talking heads with Sky and stuff like that. Like he's joking about Johnny Nelson, who infamously for boxing fans said that James Tennyson could knock out Gervonta Davis next, which um, was a bit ambitious. But Tennyson has said like, oh, it just made me laugh. And like he was joking about it, called Johnny Nelson the uh, founder of the James Tennyson fan club or something. But like just little bits like that, which is more than we've gotten previously and more like the sort of real Tennyson that you'd know from the bowels of small hall shows and like just bopping about the place like he, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful that, yeah, with Taylor now on this card and hopefully there is a bit of, um, co-promotion from like, it, it makes sense surely to have these two Irish people on the same card to put them side by side, like both in the same weight class as well. Like there are, lots of opportunities there and as I was saying uh, last week like the last time and Gavin you sort of alluded there the last time that a lot of Irish fans if ever they've seen Tennyson was on the card at the TD Garden I think it was back in 2018 when James Tennyson fought for a world title it was on the same card as KB fighting Cindy Serrano and like since then Tennyson has gone on a brilliant run but they've been on maybe smaller sky cards or early on in big pay-per-view cards like this is going to have a lot of Irish eyes on it this card this weekend and yeah it is a really good opportunity and Straffon is a tough guy but tailor made for Tennyson like he's gonna he's solid enough that he'll last a few rounds so it doesn't look like a it doesn't look like a sort of pathetic fight but he's static enough and he will get hit enough that Tennyson will get a stoppage hopefully mid-rounds Mm, events and opponents tailor made in, in very different ways of interpreting that phrase just the, that the, that he keeps those characteristics in reserve Gav actually reminds me a little bit of Andy Lee who I think that Irish viewers might be seeing a little bit of uh, on this card on Saturday night as well yeah Andy Lee is in the main event but he hasn't come out of retirement and <laughs> I think <laughs> he'll be <laughs> as relieved as anybody to realise that but he's uh, training Joseph Parker who is fighting Derek Chisora in a heavyweight fight which is the headline event here on this uh, box office show and Andy has probably grown in stature at a remarkable pace as a trainer uh, through his work with Tyson Fury most notably and I think even within that through the fact that Tyson Fury looked like a different animal altogether in his rematch against Deontay Wilder where he was aggressive spiteful and stopped Wilder as he said he would and as Andy uh, and Sugar Hill said he would. Uh, he also works with some prospects here. Um, it's a bit unfair on Jason Quigley to call him a prospect. I think he's a little bit beyond that at this point, and he's got a big fight coming up. Uh, Paddy Donovan, who uh, might be one of the top prospects in Irish boxing altogether, but this is, a, I guess, 
what is it a bit of a departure in that it's a it's a kiwi with no real affiliation to andy or no real prior affiliation to andy in parker uh came with the recommendation from tyson fury both of them did i think both parker and uh, lee and it's going to be interesting to see how this goes from just from andy lee's point of view actually because the criticism of Parker throughout his career so far has been that at times he's not aggressive enough. He can be a little bit passive and it tends to cost him in big fights. Against Derek Tuzori, you're going to be fighting against an aggressive type of fighter. And I would say that Joseph Parker is a better boxer than Derek Chisora. So if Andy can add a string to his bow in which he becomes more aggressive and becomes more spiteful himself, more calculated, this could be a, a signature win of Parker's career, really, and a, and a real rebirth of his career as a heavyweight contender so there's a good bit on the line for Andy here and if Parker wins impressively Andy's stock will continue to rise mm. okay let's go back to Katie against Natasha Jonas uh, Joe how am I gonna make some money out of this there's actually and I hate the word value but there is good value in this fight that Taylor is uh, 9-2 on for the win which is I think crazy odds because um, that's pretty much what she was for the second Pursuit fight after we knew how dangerous Pursuit was. Like normally Taylor's fights have been, she's been prohibitively short. So there's that. I'm not a value better myself. There is the stoppage again. This is, you're probably lurching into value here because it is four to one, which is quite long, I think. Um, but yeah, like not to sound depressing, but like the bookies know what they're doing and, Taylor being 13 to 8 on to win by points is like that seems about right to me mm. Gav your prediction yeah Taylor points I think is the sensible bet I think it's reasonably good value uh, to use that word again uh, it's I guess if you've a spare tenor line around the place yeah 4 to 1 for a stoppage is pretty decent because as Joe outlined earlier in the fight there are question marks around uh, Jonas ability to sustain a kind of a 10 round challenge against a fighter of taylor's caliber when we have seen her crumble before but points bet would be my gun to head prediction yeah well sky sports box office saturday night is where you can watch uh, katie taylor against natasha jonas uh, joe thanks so much for joining us uh do stay with us because uh, joe is about to morph into david snade and myself and gavin david will be looking ahead to manchester united against liverpool right after this short interlude Now, Gav and I have swapped roles and we're going to chat about football. Manchester United versus Liverpool in the English Premier League. We're joined to do so by freelance journalist extraordinaire David Snade. David, how are you? I'm very well. Thanks for that. Nice little uh, extraordinaire part of that introduction. Thank you. What are the hype levels like, David, on your behalf for this game this weekend, particularly in light of some of the absolutely putrid football we witnessed in the weekend just gone? Um, it's it's strange in the sense that you would expect Liverpool United normally it's a game that you're either very very excited for or sick to the absolute pit of your stomach depending on what what's at stake and at this point of the season it kind of just I don't know just maybe it's just because it's coming towards the end of the season that has just now just feels as if I wish it, could, it would end especially in the bracket of all the Super League stuff it actually feels a bit it feels a bit pointless what happens on the pitch. It's actually what I would say was I'd actually be more interested to see what happens off it and whether or not there's demonstrations and whether or not we get a sense of Liverpool fans and maybe Man United fans actually coming together for a for a common good and making a statement off the pitch. I think that personally that would be of far more significance to anything that happens on the pitch just because of what's happened over the last week to ten days and the kind of impact that it, it's had on a lot of people's attitudes towards the supposed big six in English football still a pretty pretty significant game on the pitch Gav for Liverpool particularly you'd suggest I mean is it more important for them this weekend than it is for United at this point of the season yeah probably I mean United will finish second the, the league could be decided uh, this weekend if, if City win on Saturday and then Liverpool win this game on Sunday they'll actually be giving up the crown that they spent 30 years trying to win uh, up until last season so it's probably bigger for Liverpool on the pitch because United will finish second and they uh, the Europa League uh, the semi-final against Roma is probably a bigger 
game in their season now at this point. Um, mm-hmm. But even still, like I mean, Liverpool have to win if they have any hope of finishing the top four, really. But but they're four points behind Chelsea now. They're what eight uh, eight points off Leicester. So like I mean, they're not going to catch Leicester at this point. I'd be pretty surprised if they uh, if they catch Chelsea either because Chelsea are better team than them and are much more energetic and are are in much better form so probably means more for Liverpool but even that isn't saying a whole lot I think this is um, it's uh, like I mean like David my hype levels unfortunately are uh, are pretty low and if the sun is shining on Sunday it's actually giving me (laughs) a hard argument to sit in and watch the whole thing I don't even know what sorry Dave no no, sorry sorry for cutting across you Gav no I was just saying like I know this is. I know there's probably a lot of Super League fatigue now at this point, but like the owners of both of these clubs have shown their hand now to both of the managers, and they do not care about the Champions League. So, from Liverpool's point of view, like if it's obviously it's important because they might it's worth what hundred million quid or whatever it might be to actually qualify in in terms of what they do next season or during the summer. Obviously, it's that that's going to be important. But like the owners have shown that actually they don't care now about the Champions League. And but like, so, like, if you're if you're Jurgen Klopp or if you're all like on our Solskjaer going into this, like, how I don't know the, the, the absolute lack of respect that they've they've both been shown by their employers, like they've shown their hand. Like, it's not a game, like it's a game of, of pride. If you're obviously Jurgen Klopp and if you're Ole Solskjaer and for the players, but like, do you reckon that John Henry will be sitting in that kind of hostage like room? He gave that absolutely pathetic apology from <laughs> giving a rat's arse about this game he could not care less and he shone John Henry Malcolm, Ma- you. Malcolm Glazer God rest him he's not going to be turning in his grave if you know he got hockey 5-0 in this game his sons aren't going to care his daughter Darcy's not going to care so like like I don't understand like, I know I said this earlier about it but like I really hope that there's something happens outside the ground and that people get a real sense of the anger that that, that is being felt I know there's going to be a fans forum with, with United fans on Friday discussing this with the club and like it's just it's been so frustrating and so disappointing because you the, there did seem to be some kind of developments made there with between fans at, at United and the fans forum with the owners and the people have run the club more so and it's just been it's just been torn to shreds and that's why this game now on on Sunday like means it genuinely don't think it means that really doesn't not to the people who actually matter and that's a lot of the fans now because it just genuinely doesn't mean that David says, Gav, that the Champions League doesn't matter to these owners anymore. They've shown their hand. And yet, with the collapse of the Super League as even a distant prospect at this point, or at least in the medium term, I'd imagine the Champions League is kind of important to them again, even though it wasn't this time last week, in the sense that as much as these lads can afford to lose a potential £100 million or so, that will likely influence budgets for next season and beyond. There are um, complications to not earning that money when you're trying to plan out from uh, the point of view of Jurgen Klopp what you're trying to do over the next couple of seasons, particularly if Liverpool need a kind of a rebuild as it seems they might. Mm, yeah, I was li- it's funny listening to David talk about that John Henry video. I thought yeah, it, was, I it thought looked it was, like a film like in a funeral. funeral. That was, that was very much that kind of burnished wood vibe that I was getting. I don't think John Henry might be bothered about missing out on the prestige of the Champions League, but I think he will be worried about the bottom line. Like Liverpool's accounts came out this week. They made an operating loss, something like 40 million. And that's in a season with only three months, three months interrupted by COVID. So there's worse still to come. So it's a bit of a disaster really for Liverpool to miss out in the Champions League because they've spent big on wages and agents fees and transfer fees relatively speaking in the last couple of years but a lot of it was funded by player sales and all of a sudden it's actually hard to see where they'll get that money in now if they don't have the Champions League because like who do you sell there's not the market there anymore like I I can imagine that Liverpool had built into their planning that we'll get three years out of Mohamed Salah and then sell him to Real Madrid for 100 million euros Real Madrid aren't going to buy Salah for 100 million euros and no one is I don't think really um, because the um, there's just more attractive options for people in the market and that uh, in terms of spending that amount of money and the market's not there so um, it's a, a, like John Henry would miss out in the Champions League from a financial point of view is the is the is the main uh, point I'm making and it I it, like that means they have to win this weekend and um, and even if they do this win this weekend, I think maybe the damage was done in that, those games against Newcastle and Leeds in the last couple of weeks. 
David, if we're not really interested in this game then, this weekend, um, and rather than just switch off the Zoom and go back to what we were doing, let's <laughs> continue to chat about football. And, and I guess in a broader picture, talk about, say, United season then. To what extent do you think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has responded to his critics with whom he's been doing the tango over the last couple of years as an overall body of work this season how impressed have you been by what Solskjaer has been able to do at the helm there yeah well first of all the, the sad thing is I still actually bet into the game that's actually the thing so it's like so frustrating but like it's a total, hypo, total hypocrite but no like I think it'll only be again it's obvious but like you'll see what happens at the end of the season and if you know you'd have won a trophy if they've finish well second in, in the league if they win the Europa League and finish second then it's more progress that you've seen like if you look at it it's actually interesting the fact that obviously it's around this game now against Liverpool because the reverse fixture at Anfield you know were top of the table at that point spent most of spent most of January top of the league I think there were two or three points ahead of Man City after that Liverpool game at Anfield and City had one game in hand and since then like they just dropped like they lost to Sheffield United like they drew away to Arsenal, they seem to get back on track in Jan- at the end of Jan. Then we that win against uh, Southampton the nine nil, but then after that, then they just what that that draw at home to Everton and then West Brom back to back. That just really from a point of during the season, since then they just been second. But at that point, you're kind of thinking, are the wheels going to fall off here? And to to his credit, he has kept them in second place and as close to City, but well. The only team who are, who are close, but still, still miles off the pace. That is a criticism of this season that will follow into next year if United do start well as well. May they, they did get ahead, they did get top, and they just hadn't got it in them to stay there. Now, I think realistically, I think no United fan or no one looking at it would have expected United to be top of the league in January and to sustain a title challenge during the season. But when you're in that position and you don't do it, that's when there's going to be questions marks and that's what will follow him into next season because if he goes into next season on the back of maybe not winning the trophy that semi-final Hudio again coming over him and finishing maybe second or you never know even toward if depending on what happens with although that would be it would be a bit of a surprise if they totally fell apart now at this stage but like going into next year that's going to be the big the, the big issue will be can United sustain any kind of challenge because you would expect depending on what happens with Chelsea, you would expect Chelsea to be a lot stronger next season. City will obviously be very strong. They're going to be the champions. They're going to be defending that title again. Could even be the European champions. Liverpool, like Liverpool, you'd expect Liverpool to come back. This is the thing. Like They're going to have a stronger squad next year with the injuries that they've had, getting players back. It's going to be a big test to Klopp as well, a little bit of, can he, can he not, not so much rebuild the team, but actually just kind of revitalise it a little bit and, wouldn't be surprised if they're like. I wouldn't be surprised if they come back a little bit strong. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think they're going to benefit massively. I think from maybe like Salah and Mane not playing any football during the summer, so that could be that could be a major benefit. But from a point of view of from Solskjaer, it will like the next week is going to really could define a lot of the. The narrative, I suppose, around them is because if he doesn't win a trophy and they get knocked and they get knocked out of the the Europa League, it's going to be major question marks around them going into uh, going into next season. Especially as I said, from a point of view of they got into a good a good position in January and just weren't able to uh, maintain it. Just before we bring Gav back in to follow up on that, Dave. Solskjaer seems insistent on making kind of more incremental progress with United. Like mm-hmm. we've heard him only a couple of weeks ago almost dismiss the ideas of trophies being important and uh, I think you could take that with a grain of salt he probably doesn't actually intrinsically believe that but he was clearly trying to take the weight of expectation off of this squad build more patiently patiently have a discussion maybe about trophies next season obviously they still have a chance of winning the Europa League as we speak but then you look at Chelsea to whom you allude there and the fact that you would anticipate Chelsea will will mount a title challenge of their own next season under Thomas Tuchel and you see how uh, quickly they have turned into a team who are now <laughs> I mean they're European contenders literally as we speak for the Champions League yeah. and I guess what I'm asking in a long-winded way is do you think that if United had a more established manager of Tuchel's ilk that the patience w- or the progress wouldn't need to be so incremental that somebody could transform the, that team with the resources they have at their disposal much faster than Solskjaer has 
even if we accept that he's actually done a fine job yeah no it's a good point like that's that, that's one of the impressive things just like it's hard to it's hard to say well with, with what would Tuchel do with, with this Man United team like he's done exceptionally well with, with Chelsea yeah. and he's just turned him into a real just look so so organised and so just well regimented you know which is surprising for a German manager to be able to do that um, but like like it's just um, if you're looking at it from United's point of view and what Solskjaer has done like He's get, he's actually gotten a lot more. As he's made some good signings, like obviously Bruno Fernandes, fantastic. But bit by bit, he's gotten so much more out of players who'd already been there and maybe looked as if they were on the way out. Like just the, 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 what what's happened with Luke Shaw? Obviously, listen, the majority of that benefit. Oh, sorry, the uh, the the major the majority of that should be down to Luke Shaw. Like he's the one who who's done it. But he's done it in a, in a framework that Solskjaer has provided for him and a man management style that obviously has been has been well praised. Paul Pogba. He seems to have gotten the a bit more consistency out of Paul Pogba, which you can't listen. Like you can't, you can't like sniff at that. That's really, really has been really impressive. And if again, that's going to be another issue over the summer. What's going to happen with Pogba's future? Like the improvement even in Aaron Wan-Bissaka, like like this year, like over the last few weeks, he's actually looked like a very competent footballer with the ball at his feet. Which is again, you have to benefit the you have to give the the benefit of the doubt to to the player. He's the one who's clearly putting the work in but again it comes within a framework that, that the manager that the manager is providing like there, there's no doubt that the progress has been there bit by bit under Sol, under Solskjaer you see them now in the, in, if you're looking at it just in the bare facts of, on that league position like more than like they've already got more points at this stage last season than they accumulated in the whole of last year's one, one point more around 67 like they should finish second second excuse me like Baron. Barring Man City having an absolute catastrophe now at this point of the season, and maybe, like, which isn't going to happen. You never know what's going to happen in a title race. Obviously, City have the league box off. Like, let's actually, I shouldn't shouldn't even mention that because that's just not going to happen. City will win the league, but I think sometimes, yeah, like, I think sometimes the progress is all right to, for it to be a, to be steady, especially where you look at where United have been coming from under that before that with the the change in the managers like Moyes, Van Gaal, Mourinho, just. I, I think it, I think it maybe can be underestimated just the depth of the feeling that had happened between the disconnect between Mourinho and the United fan base and that squad of players to when he took over, and it's it is just it is just completely different now. The cynic cynic in me, which has has really kind of come to the fore, especially over the last week, would have made me think, well, the Glazers just want someone in there who the fans will tolerate and have a bit of a connection with, so long as they do just. Do deliver Champions League and that that pot of money that comes every year, but like I think bit by bit you have to start respecting what the job he's doing and I also think, and this is no disrespect to Chelsea, but like compared to Man United and the actual <laughs> the actual kind of pressure that that is there, it's like night and day really and like the the pressure you're under. Maybe there's pressure obviously from Abramovich and and all the rest of it, but in terms of media spotlight and everything that comes with it, like. It's different, totally, totally different league. And in terms of how Solskjaer has managed it, like look where United are in the league. And if you're if you're if you are gauging it in terms of progress of consistency, they they've come on so much this season. As I mentioned, there was clearly that dip after January, few draws and 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 that defeat to Sheffield United. But that's the last time they were beaten. And I think if he does get this trophy, which I think it'll be a a, a big thing maybe for for some people. For some people, if he does get that trophy, that will relieve a little bit of the pressure. But it's just going to ramp back up as soon as next season starts, and that's what he has to be ready for again. Is actually sustaining a title challenge for next season because that's going to be the next stage on this development. Because as you said, there's been incremental improvement. You would like to think that to be improvement in terms of recruitment during the summer, and then it's going to have to be a case of seeing just a, a title challenge effectively. And it looked to be happening up until January. If aided, I think that'll be accepted as a team in progress, but from next season that won't be accepted. Looking at the man in the opposite dugout then, Gav, uh, were you at any point over the last number of weeks of the belief that Jurgen Klopp might have been reaching the end of his tether and indeed the end of his tenure at Anfield? And if I can ask you a second question, to what extent do you think Klopp needs to rebuild next season or can he rely upon roughly the same personnel and, and kind of reinvigorate them rather than having to look externally? 
Mm. I think if Klopp was to leave Liverpool at the end of this season, I think it'd be more likely that he would resign than be sacked. Like, I mean, like he's got, he's as safe in terms of from the sack, he's as safe as any manager in the Premier League is, I think. Um, whether he would resign, I thought maybe he might resign based on the stresses of this season. And then late in the last couple of weeks, I thought he might resign having been tossed under a bus by his owners over the Super League. But seemingly, neither of that is the case. And he's going to at least see out his contract until... When does it end? 2022 or possibly 2024. Sorry, but I, he'll be around anyway for next season. Um, yeah, I thought like it does appear that the Aris has fallen out of this thing now in a very serious way. Uh, and maybe it's somewhat understandable. Maybe it's a kind of a reversion to the mean, because if you look based on budgets, Liverpool should really be kind of the fourth best team in England. Like City, Chelsea and United all have more power, more financial power than them. And they were just so exceptional in the previous two seasons to the point where they over I think overperformed a little bit and were extremely fortunate with injuries but all of that is given away this season so I thought up to like how much of this season can be explained away by the injuries the Van Dyke one being the most obvious one and the kind of cosmic uh, bad luck at centre back but in the last few weeks you're beginning to think that this is a kind of a broken system and I think the team needs a reboot next season. It needs fresh blood, but I also think it needs to change some of its ideas. And I think that's the that's a very interesting question that's going to be asked of Klopp now, where he hasn't really had to do this before. You know, previously a team got dismantled, his team got dismantled because Bayern Munich bought their players. Whereas now, like I mean, like is anyone going to come in and take cherry pick Liverpool's big players in this market? I don't think so. So it's difficult for him to say thanks very much guys you've been great for me but I'm you know you're finished now farewell and there are players in that team I think he has to have that conversation with like Roberto Firmino has been like the pivot everything has worked around him but he's been in decline for two years you know he looks absolutely shot and understandable like he's been he's been ran into the ground up front in that team for years um, and Vinal, it looks like Vinaldo will leave because they can't agree a contract extension with him so He's, he'd be a big loss, actually, because, you know, um, he's an integral part of the team that, that Klopp built um, with Henderson and Fabinho in midfield that, that went and, and won, every, won the big trophies that, that they had to win. So it's a very interesting to see how he rebuilds and will he be given a budget to rebuild? I mean, the fact that they were uh, signing Ozan Kabak on the last day of the January window on a loan suggests that maybe that money isn't there. Uh, so they, But I do think they have to invest. So... Um, it needs it needs serious revitalization. I think a break and obviously the likes of Van Dyke and Gomez coming back from injury will do wonders. But I think it needs fresh blood, particularly up front, possibly in midfield as well. So it's uh, that's going to be a very interesting question asked of Klopp that I don't think has been asked of him so far in his career. I think we probably all need a break, do we? Not from you guys, mind you. But David, uh, ahead of this one then, which way are you leaning? Do you anticipate United will pretty much definitively put an end to Liverpool's bid to reach Champions League football or do you anticipate it being another absolutely mawky stalemate mm. they're not usually as bad at Old Trafford is the only thing it's Anfield for some reason I think United tend to be more conservative there Liverpool probably a little yeah. bit braver at Old Trafford which way do you think it'll go I don't know like, I think I suppose a lot depends on what happens between in the United Roma game on Thursday in terms of what's on the line like if United if United go and have a great result on tours, they they're gonna go into that game full of confidence. And if they get if they've put the toy to bed, which it's very rare you would do that in the first leg of a semi final, and especially the first legs at Old Trafford, like it, you know, you can can struggle. Like I don't know, I don't think you can ever really be too confident of of, of say of United win at home just because of how they've they can how they have kind of maybe stuttered in a lot of games. But then if you actually look at the record, they still won a lot a lot of games at home. I think. Because so much does depend on this for for Liverpool. I think they could be, they could be about eight points behind, seven or eight points. I think they could be eight points behind Chelsea by the time of the time of kickoff because of the like Chelsea are at home. Chelsea have Fulham on on Saturday, um. But I just I just think there's so much so much riding on the game from Liverpool's from Liverpool's point of view that they have to just leave. They have they can't they can't leave Atten out there. They have to like really kind of go at them. And you would think that's going to play into United's hands. Like United can almost set up 
maybe one of the benefits of not of being of no fans that he can actually set up like an away game and let Liverpool come onto them and hit them on the break. So I think United will win. I think it'll probably be by, be by the odd goal. But I think as you said, I think it could actually be a decent game. It could be a bit end to end and um, yeah, just I, I I'm going back to what I said earlier. It's just. Part of me is just because of everything that's happened over the last while. I just wish both teams could lose five 0 <laughs> At least we'd see some goals, Gav. Which way do yeah, you think sure. it'll go yourself? Uh, I think Manchester United will win, Gav. I'm looking at William Hill. A match handicap: Man United minus one is nine to two. So that's what uh, that's what I'm taking ahead of this game, and for exactly the reasons that David has outlined. Liverpool will have to attack, and they have some of the slowest centre halves I've ever seen in the Premier League, and United have some of the fastest attackers. So I think. They'll rip them, rip them to shreds in the counter. Unanimous decision. David Snay, thanks a million. No bother. Take care. Yeah. Gav Cooney, thank you very much. Thanks, lads. Thank you to everybody at home for watching or listening. Uh, thank you to William Hill. Remember to visit dunlewy.net and gamble responsibly. Until next time, mind yourselves. Take it easy. <laughs>